It's so good to see you here this morning. Those of you who were part of our our, uh, Word of Life Reverb on Friday night, thank you for all of your hard work and diligence and serving and I'm glad you're recovered enough to actually be uh, not comatose this morning. So thank you for that. It was an amazing time. Tyler will give you a little bit of an update about that later. So good to be gathered in God's house, trusting him for what he wants to do here this morning. We are reading in uh, the Gospel of Mark again. That's where our series has been these last couple months and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. And our our plan this morning is to do what we do each week. We're going to read a passage of the Bible And we're going to try to explain it in a way that makes some sense to us and sheds light on the uh, Word of God and hopefully find some application for us today. And then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together as a church family. It's going to be a great day. This morning, we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 3, verse 6. It's another conflict story. You'll remember the last couple weeks, what we're dealing with is Mark is telling us stories about how Jesus is in conflict with the religious power structure of his day. And so they're upset with him for things like fasting or not fasting. They're, they're upset with him because he's not playing by their rules. He's not, he's not demonstrating religious devotion the way that they do, and they're upset with him for that. There's a, there's a message in there for those of us who grew up in some of those circles, right? That the, the, the religious elite is angry with Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus isn't quite done yet. He's coming at him yet again this morning in another one of these conflict stories where he squares off against the Pharisees and the scribes. Last week, he tangled with them over the issue of fasting, why do, your, why do John's disciples and, and other people fast, but why, why is it that your disciples don't fast? And he gave those examples of the new wine and the old skins, that what Jesus is doing is so radically different that the old structures of religious observance, they don't even, they're not compatible with this new thing that he's doing. In fact, what he's doing is tearing that whole old structure down and building a new foundation, which is Christ. And we talked about that last week. And we've already seen in, in this um, gospel already in the first couple chapters, Jesus demonstrating that he is a new king of a new kingdom and that this king has authority over demons, over Satan, over temptation. He's got authority over the careers and affairs of men. He's got authority over sickness and disease. He has authority to forgive sin. And today he goes after, what we're going to see today, he goes after the distinguishing mark of the Pharisees' religious self-pride. He goes after their observance of the Sabbath. It is the the penultimate expression of their religiosity. It's bound up in their strict adherence of the Sabbath and their disdain for anybody who doesn't observe it their way. And he goes right after them today. Today he presents himself as the one who has authority over the observance of the Sabbath day. The authority to reveal and communicate the will of God for his people for this day. And the Pharisees and the scribes hate him for it. Let's look at Mark chapter 2 starting in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? 
How we entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. All right, this whole passage is is broken down into two incidents, two showdowns, so to speak, two conflicts. And the first is an incident in the field, in the grain fields. In verse 23 of chapter 2, we're told that it was a Sabbath day and Jesus and his disciples were out walking through the fields. Which probably could have been an offense too because the Pharisees had some kind of rule about you could only walk 1,999 steps on a Sabbath day and if you took the extra step to 2,000, you had committed a foul. Unless you were going to get food and then you could reset. There were so many rules and regulations that they added. So he's walking through probably sometime around May or June when the, the wheat would have been ripening. You might think that the Pharisees were concerned about him stealing. Like they were just walking through and eating as they found it sitting there. You know, like, like our kids did in the grocery stores when they were little, right? They would just grab things off the, out of the cart, open them up and start eating before you paid for them. Or, or like my son Noah does, we have a pantry at our house and it's open. And when you walk from the kitchen to the living room, you have to pass by all the goodies. And, and Noah, when he's home, he will literally... A thousand times a day, reach a hand in and grab a handful of something on his way through. Every time he's just harvesting as he goes, right? Now, he's not grabbing a bowl. He doesn't sit down with a plate. He doesn't fix himself a serving. He's just grazing, right, wherever, wherever there's food. And then he doesn't eat his dinner because he's not hungry, of course, because he ate two bags of pretzels, All right? He's not here, so don't, don't tell him I said that. It's not thievery that's the problem here. In fact, in fact, that part is actually legal. Deuteronomy 23, 25 makes provision for people to harvest or, or to take something to eat out of their neighbor's field. You can do it with a hand. You can't do it with a sickle. Now, that's not, that's not legalism. That's just saying you can take a snack for your sustenance, but you can't harvest your neighbor's field. You can pluck an ear of corn out of somebody else's garden, but you can't go take all their corn and go sell it. But you are allowed. That, that part was, le- the snack was legal, the timing of the snack, right out. That's where he was in trouble, right? They did it on a Sabbath day. And the Pharisees determined that what the disciples were doing was a violation of the prohibition of reaping and harvesting. Even though God's law made a provision for it, they had added rules and ordinances and traditions of men on top of the law to make sure that we stayed far away from violating that law. So what they determined was, in order to eat grain, you had to pluck it 
and crushed it and get the kernels out of it. So they determined that to pluck and crush and then sift and eat was reaping or harvesting, which equals working, which equals a foul. So they cried foul. They said, why are you, look at your disciples. They're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And specifically, they were talking about harvesting. Because they said what they were doing was harvesting. Why are you allowing them to do that, is what they're saying. Why is it that you're okay with your disciples breaking this law? Remember, Jesus, you who perceive yourself to be righteous, why is it that yet again you're allowing your followers to do what is very clearly not righteous by our standards? It'd be good to get a little background here, right? We know that God institutes the Sabbath at the close of the creation week where he rests from all his labors, the seventh day. And he reiterates that commandment at Sinai in the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. In Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, the Israelites are not permitted to work on the Sabbath. They're supposed to rest, to recover. But what Jesus was doing wasn't exactly work, right? Well, yes and no. According to the Pharisees, yes, it was. You see, they had enumerated 39 different kinds of work that weren't actually your work, but were work to them. And if you did any of those things, in addition to the work that you normally do on the Sabbath day, you were committing a sin. And they interpreted picking a few heads of grain as reaping or harvesting. They had a lot of really weird stuff. They determined, by the way, if you threw a rock up in the air with one hand and caught it with the same hand, that was not work. But if you were a juggler and caught it with the other hand, you worked. They forbade a woman from looking into a mirror or a glass because she might see something that needed to be plucked out. That was work. They forbade where you could spit. Remember on the ground? You couldn't spit on the ground and make mud because that was kneading and that was work. Do we remember what Jesus or what the Bible actually says though? The Bible's, the Bible's prohibition was against your labor, your work. Not everything else. It should come as no surprise to us that the scribes had added so many of these extraneous requirements to this one commandment about the Sabbath. They create endless restrictive rules around the Sabbath, and they made this legalism the defining mark of their spiritual virtue. And Jesus, in his goodness, he rejects all of it. Absolutely all of it. Because his kingdom and following him, the way of Jesus, is not about puffing ourselves up with all of our religious activity. That's not Christianity at all, actually. That's as far from it as you can get. See, he's going to fulfill the law with every jot and tittle, but he will not conform to the traditions of men. So, so a little bit of further review. Remember, there was a flag thrown on the play. These guys have committed a foul. We're going to go to New York for, for some further review, instant replay. David says, or, or Jesus says to the Pharisees, well, haven't you read of David? Which is basically Jesus, okay, this is veiled to us, basically Jesus looking at the guys who had most of the Bible memorized and say to them, don't you read your Bibles? Okay, so he's coming hard at him right now. He's, he's saying, well, no, you guys are supposed to be the experts. You don't know this? You never read this? 
And he highlights an example in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, of a really interesting story. It's a story of David. When David and his men came to Nob, which is north of Jerusalem, and they violated a ceremonial regulation of the law. And what happened was, he arrived with his guys, and he asked the priest, Ahimelech, for food, for five loaves of bread. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have any common bread for you. I don't have any bread that's available for the everyday person to eat. All that I have is the showbread, the bread of the presence, the bread that is presented to God on the altar. Twelve loaves of bread, brought hot bread, brought to the Lord on the Sabbath day, set before him as a sign of Israel's dependence on God for provision and sustenance. And in those moments, what would happen is they would take the 12 loaves from the previous week off the altar, place the new hot loaves on, and the priests were able to eat those loaves, but no one else. So he says, look, any of you have, any of you have china at your house that you're not allowed to really use? Any of you husbands have, have furniture that you can't sit on? You know what I'm talking about? This is for, only certain people are allowed to sit here. And only certain people are allowed to eat on this. You're not one of those people, but I am, right? So, at this case, what we have is the priest saying, look, the only people who are allowed to eat this very special holy bread, the show bread, are priests. David, you're not a priest. Your men aren't priests. But David says, they're hungry. So the priest says, look, I'll allow it as long as they've kept themselves clean. Are they ceremonial clean? Have they kept themselves from women? And he says, look, there, there are no women are traveling with us. They're ceremonially clean in that sense. And even though they weren't priests, they were still able to eat the bread. Okay, so here we have an example of a clear explanation of where David and his men actually violated a ceremonial regulation of the law of God for their hunger. And Alistair Begg said it this way, the ceremonial is set aside by necessity. David and his men didn't break the spirit of the Sabbath by eating the bread. They were simply hungry. They were in need. And used here, Jesus, according to the New American Commentary, Jesus is making a case. These men are justified in what they did because they were hungry. And the needs of men and women should take precedence over ceremonial laws. Mercy should triumph ritual and ceremony. You don't uphold the ceremony and lose a life. Because the souls of men and the image of God in them gives them a sanctity to their lives and a dignity to their lives. And to violate that dignity to uphold the ceremony is foolish. And if David and his men, David, this man after God's own heart, David, this, this king of Israel, David, the most, the most wonderful king that Israel had ever known, if he and his men were able to violate a divine prescription, in order to satisfy their hunger. How much more are Jesus and his disciples able to violate this human tradition in order to satisfy theirs? Have you not read about David? David set this example for us. The law that I'm breaking isn't even a law. It's your law, and it doesn't even matter. And then he says, what's the Sabbath for? 
The Sabbath isn't created for, or sorry, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here's my ruling upon further review. The Sabbath is a gift to man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, that doesn't sound very clear. What does it mean? It means that the Sabbath is a gift of God to mankind. The Sabbath is not an end in itself. It was given for the joy and the benefit and the blessing of men and women, an opportunity to rest from their labors and rest in God's finished work. An opportunity to recharge and restore their bodies, their minds, their souls. And a reminder that that the world will continue to move on with or without your efforts. A reminder that God's work is finished, so ours can wait. It was not instituted to be a burden. The Sabbath wasn't instituted to be a burden. It wasn't instituted to be restrictive of basic human needs. It wasn't instituted to create stress and tension and insecurity before the Lord, wondering, oh no, did I break it? Did I keep it? Oh my gosh, is he upset with me today? Oh no. It's Sunday. Did I mow my grass? Is he going to strike me dead? Oh my goodness. The Sabbath wasn't given to create that kind of tension and anxiety with regard to obedience like that. It was not given to weigh men down with all these ordinances. Instead, instead it was given to cause them to rest and raise them up. Now, no, no, no. I'm going I'm to wax old here for a second. One pastor that I listened to said, this is not a justification for American Christians to determine that they can do whatever they want on the Lord's day. Basically reducing Ten Commandments to nine. Like, that, that's not what this is saying. That you should know by now I'm not a legalist. I've been here a long time. You should get that from me. And I'm not going to play the, Holy, the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and tell you what you should and should not do. But I would say this in response to this truth. I do think it would be wise for American Christians in today's era to ask the Lord and seek his direction on what Sabbath observance would look like for them. Because for so many of us, it's just another day off to get stuff done. And maybe, maybe the Lord would really honor us or honor that investment of time with him, drawing close to him with new fervor, with new spiritual power, with new graces in our lives. If for a moment we just ceased from our labors and rested in his for us. Now all this is given to help us see that the Sabbath is a gift and ought not to be an unnecessary burden. Which is a little different than what they had understood before. The Sabbath had been a burden to them. And then he says, oh and by the way, I'm actually the one who has the authority to say all of this. Because what he's saying is offensive to them. They make their whole their whole religious observance about what they do on the Sabbath day, it's the pinnacle of their dedication to God. And he's basically saying, yeah, all that doesn't really matter. You're just adding all that. to the, What you're doing is just added stuff that God doesn't even care about and it's not necessary. So it's offensive to them. Almost, almost as though they would say, and who gives you the right to tell us that? And he says, oh, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, I'm the new king of the new kingdom. And I've displayed power over darkness, over sin, over sickness and disease. I have the power to change men's entire existence at the sound of my word. I have that power and my power extends even over this. Or my power extends even over what is religious observance and what is not. 
okay, so now they're really upset. John MacArthur said this might be his most controversial self-identification. The Jews knew the origin, origin of the Sabbath. They knew that God himself set it in place, that he, it was he who presided over it. it. They knew it was God who revealed the law, God who reiterated the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 5, when it was spoken again, to claim to be Lord of the Sabbath is to claim equality with God, so he is either God or a blasphemer, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Like C.S. Lewis, he's either a lunatic, he's either crazy, he's a liar, or he's Lord. There aren't a whole lot of options. In saying this, he strikes a harsh blow at the system of the Pharisees, a system of ceremonial observances that determined their religious status. In saying this, he's confronting every religion of this world that says your position with God is impacted and secured by your good moral deeds. And he comes and says, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I determine it. Okay, so if that wasn't enough, then he has another showdown with these guys in the synagogue. Could be a successive Sabbath day. It might be the next week. And now, at this time, he enters a synagogue, which is normal. And there was a man there with a withered hand. We're not sure what exactly is going on. He had some kind of particular affliction that plagued this man. So maybe a paralysis, a disability of some sort, prevented the full use of that hand. And it was known that he, was, that he had a, a shriveled hand. And they were there. They, the, the Pharisees, they were there. They were in the synagogue. Of course they were, because they loved the Lord and they wanted to serve, right? No. They were there to catch him. They were there to watch him. To make sure he didn't step out of line. They were looking for ways to throw another penalty flag. They hated him. They hated him because the message he preached was an offense to them. Because the cross of Jesus is offensive to people who believe their own good deeds are enough. And he basically says, no, they don't, they don't accomplish anything. So there they are, these moral people, just like the rich young ruler who would look at Jesus and say, look, all these things I've kept from my youth, what else do I need to do? Here they are all sitting around waiting, watching. And they watch Jesus seeking to catch him. And he sees the man and he calls him to the middle, come to the middle, the benches would have been on the outside, come to the middle, he's standing in the center of this crowd. And then he asked them, not the man with the shriveled hand, although that might have been a little bit uncomfortable for him to stand up again and be pointed out. Here he is standing with Jesus in the center of the room and he looks at all the religious people who are looking at him with scorn and he says to them, what do you say? Is it lawful to heal this man? Let's, let's read it. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? You tell me, guys. What would God have me do? An act of mercy and heal this man? Or would he have me deny this man? Is it lawful before the Lord to do good today? Or does God desire me to do harm today? He puts it right in their lap. And they are silent. Do you know why they're silent? They're stuck. If they say to him, Jesus, it's lawful for you to do good, then they can't get mad at him when he heals him. 
And if they say to him, no, God would have you look away from this man and do harm to him, though that's clearly a violation of God's character and nature for the Sabbath. Not only that, the Sabbath, their rules did allow for healing on the Sabbath, but it had to be life and death. If it was a life and death situation, you could heal on the Sabbath. Consequently, if you were a parent or a caregiver and it wasn't life or death, you were not allowed to care for somebody who was ill, like your child, because then you were breaking the Sabbath. Because you're doing work. How ridiculous are these people? Okay. So then he looks at them with anger. So he asks them this question. As they're trying to trap him, they realize they're trapped and they say nothing. And he looks around at them. He doesn't just glaze. He stares at them with anger. One of the only places in the scriptures where we hear and see Jesus' anger. And what was his anger directed towards? Religious people who put more weight in their religious observance than following the Lord and doing justice and mercy. There's There's a lesson in there for us for sure. Lesson for us. He looks at them with anger. God hates hypocritical Sabbath keeping. You know that, right? He actually says that. <laughs> he, he desires that we stop doing evil and learn to do good. Remember, in, in, when, when Matthew tells this story, he looks at the, at the Pharisees, the same story, looks at the Pharisees and the scribes and he says, so you make a provision to rescue a sheep if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath day, but you won't heal this man which is exactly what the case is. You're going to give preference to a beast of burden, an animal, but you won't heal this man created in the image of God. You won't lift a finger to do mercy and justice, and you won't give grace to this man, but, but you make a provision to save an animal. And he's grieved in his heart at their response. What is it that grieves him? These men are supposed to speak for him. They're the ones that his people look to for leadership. They're the ones that his his children go to for direction and care. And these false shepherds are really wolves in sheep's clothing. Just like those false priests in Malachi. They're hypocritical. These men, these men who are supposed to be messengers of the gospel of God are heaping burdens on people and then not lifting a finger to help them. And Jesus says at one point that you create twice the sons of hell that you are when you do that. He looks at them with anger. He's grieved at the hardness of heart. Grief because these sons of Abraham nationally, ethnically, were not sons of Abraham spiritually. They're so close, yet so far away. Reminded here also of of John chapter 5 and the healing at the pool where a man lay 38 years ill. Finally, he's healed. And the Pharisees make a stink about the fact that he's carrying the mat on which he laid. How out of touch. They confront him and they tell him, look, you can't do that. Look, I know you've been been ill and paralyzed for four decades. 
I know that you've been hopeless and lost and empty and depressed and discouraged and needy. And I know that Jesus just gave you life. It transformed you. But you've got to put the mat down. And he looks at him. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, look, I've been sick for 38 years. And some man just touched me and healed me. And he told me to get up and carry this bed. And any man who has the power and authority to heal me of that, I'm going to listen to. And when you demonstrate a power and authority to do the same, maybe I'll listen to you. Jesus says, keep that in mind, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And as he stretches it out, his hand is healed, restored, full use. And they left because they had nothing else to do. They were soundly defeated and embarrassed and angry. Who does he think he is healing people on the Sabbath day? What a jerk. So they leave and they take counsel among themselves and with the Herodians against him how they could destroy him. Luke tells us they're filled with, with madness and rage. They hate his teaching because it attacks their spiritual pride, which is what religious people think when they hear the gospel. Apart from the light of God shining on their hearts and exposing that and revealing who he is, they hear the message of the gospel. Wait, I don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all for me. And they're offended because they think like the rich young ruler, then why have I been working so hard? Don't you know how good I am? I try really hard. But Jesus' message is an offense to religious people. Now, as John MacArthur points out, three chapters into Mark, we have the definitive response of the religious elite. Kill him. That's their plan, and they won't stop. Kill him. They conspire with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians aren't Jews. It's not a sect of Judaism. These are secularists. They're offspring of Herod, rulers of the region. They're seen as Romanized. They're seen as Hellenists. In fact, the Jews hate them. They're staunch enemies of the Pharisees. But, in the same way that I was never a bigger Giants fan than I was last Sunday night, and I'll never be a bigger Vikings fan than I am tonight, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And my favorite football team is the Eagles and anybody playing the Dallas Cowboys, right? These guys hate the Herodians, but if they can work together to kill Jesus, a common enemy, they're willing to compromise. All right. So what? What, what does that mean for us today? Okay, there's a couple things I think we need to keep in mind, some principles we can wrestle with. There's one really big thing I want to get to, so hang on, here we go. The first is Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the right, the power, the authority to determine and reveal the will of God on the matter of Sabbath keeping. The most important religious expression of the Pharisees. Jesus has the power and authority to tell us what it looks like to be a follower of God. Not the traditions of men, 
not the ordinances of your church necessarily, unless they're in line with Scripture's teaching. Not cultural Christianity. No, no, no. Jesus has the power, the right, the authority to determine for us what is acceptable devotion to him. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Did you hear that? That's what God says to his people. Not your religious observance, not your suit and tie, not showing up at the right place at the right time to be seen, not serving people in the community so you can put a spotlight on yourself and share it with everybody else. No, 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 no. What is good and what the Lord requires of you. He has the right to determine that. More specifically, the traditions of religious men and women are not supreme. His word is. His word is. The traditions of men and women. So some of us have a story like mine. Where uh, in an earlier season of life, we were kind of growing up in a, in a uh, kind of a restrictive religious culture. And it was oppressive. And it produced a level of anxiety in us because we never knew if we were actually measuring up. Because the scoreboard just wasn't Jesus' righteousness. It was that and a whole bunch of other things that we were allowed to do and not allowed to do depending on which day it was and what season it was and who was in the room. And it created this, this sense of anxiety. And you know what liberated us from that? The Bible did. We started reading the scriptures and realized, wait a minute, that's garbage. That doesn't line up with what Jesus says. We, we started looking at all these things we were putting our confidence in, that all these moral deeds that we were doing, and we said, wait a minute, that, that's a good thing, but it does not merit me righteousness before God. I need to do what Jesus says. I need to submit to him. I need to trust him. See, the word of God is supreme over the traditions of men and women, even religious men and women. Even religious men and women, especially religious men and women. Secondly, there's a principle here that should give us pause. That mercy for the needy, doing justice, loving mercy, walking home with God, mercy sometimes trumps adherence of our religious traditions. In the case of David, mercy trumped the law of God concerning these ceremonial regulations. Because we will not uphold a ceremony and lose a life. Mercy should trump our religious traditions. And thirdly, I think we can be excited today about this. That the way of Jesus is not an endless list of impossible demands. Not like these Pharisees. You see, what happened is the Pharisees practice a form of religious brutality. They're the only ones who really know the score. They're the only ones who really know the playbook. They've got so many rules and regulations that nobody could keep them. And even though they're really good at outwardly keeping many of them, Paul reminds us in Romans that they're guilty just like the rest of us. These men practice religious brutality. They don't lift people from their burden. They heap burdens on top. They look at people who are struggling, and rather than offer them Jesus, who transforms them. Remember what Peter and John said, look, I don't have any money, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. 
Rather than reach out with the hand of fellowship and the touch of grace and the word of God to lift their burdens, no, they they look at the one who is down and they condemn them in their weakness and in their sin and then they heap burdens on top of them. And they they don't shoulder the load to help them. They walk away and look at them with scorn, patting themselves on their back for their religious observance. But that's not the gospel. No, no, no. There's there's no good news in that. How is that good news? You are a sinner. You have no hope. And that's it. How is that good news? You can't earn God's favor. Here's a bunch of other things you should try to do. It's not going to work. You're still a mess. Don't talk to me. I'm more holy than you. How is that good news? You're a sinner and a tax collector and surely not the kind of person that God would want. You've done too much bad in your life. There's no hope for you. That's not good news. No, see, that's not the gospel. What the Pharisees are teaching is not the gospel. No, the gospel is that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, descended to earth, veils himself in human flesh, and fulfills perfectly every command of the law of God for you in glorious perfection. And then he looks at those who are guilty under the law's commands, not with scorn and contempt, but with tenderness and compassion, and stoops to lower himself, lifting up our burdens of guilt and shame, actually taking them on himself to die on the cross, and then hands us, clothes us, wraps his righteousness and his good standing with God around us and accepts us. Not because we were so moral that he didn't have a choice, but because we were so lost and helpless, we had no other hope. That is the gospel message that we preach, the one that changed my life, the one that changed many of yours. And if you're here today and you never trusted Jesus, it can change your life right now. That's the gospel. We, I think we've all had enough of religious tradition, right? Every one of us, we've had enough of that garbage. It doesn't work. It doesn't actually kill the the sins of the flesh. It doesn't satisfy those needs. It doesn't create oneness with God. It just makes us anxious and nervous and weary. And Jesus cries out to all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, come unto me and I'll give you what? More burdens? I'll give you more work to do? He says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. And why does he give us rest? Because it doesn't matter? No. He gives us rest because he did the work for us. And all of us who are trusting in our own works to get us somewhere with God, need to hear that message clearly this morning. The gospel of grace triumphs over the religious observances of men. And if you're trusting in Jesus, then you've been set free from all that. And if you're not, then why not today? Let today be that day where you stop trying to muster this up with your own good deeds and simply trust him.